You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee, and with me again is Paul Doroshenko. Hello. Hi. <laughs> Glad to be back. Yes. Um, I thought today we would, rather than discuss sort of issues in the news and um, issues in the public related to driving law, that we would discuss four weeks of four appeals before our superior courts in British Columbia dealing with driving law related issues. Well, it's four weeks, four appeals. And it's four appeals that we succeeded on. One Basically once a, one a week. Well, they weren't all appeals, actually. One was a trial. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't... We had a Supreme Court trial. I, I, I wouldn't... But it was an issue that had turn been. this podcast into a big, look, we win all the time type thing. Well, that's not the idea. I want to focus on the law. It's just, <laughs> it's just unusual that it was four weeks. That yeah. we, there was a, like one success a week. So four I was weeks, happy about four, uh, four big wins and four big statements about the law in relation to driving in and, British Columbia. And, and we usually have three topics. Yeah, so, so like, bonus topic. Yeah, we're, uh, we're throwing caution to the wind and uh, <laughs> changing our whole system here and going to... So I guess let's for. start with the most, I think the most important one of the three, but maybe I'm biased because it was my case. Um, and that was the Partridge case about cell phone tickets. That was a uh, an interesting one, yeah. So the uh, we just got the decision, yes, and it was you March ran, first. You ran the trial. Did you run the trial? Yeah. So it was a trial in traffic court. Um, the allegation was that the cell phone was in use because it was wedged between the folds of the passenger seat, where the back of the seat meets the you know butt part of the seat. The phone was wedged in there. The officer testified at trial that it was wedged, like it wasn't moving around, um, and that uh, there was no actual use of the phone. There was no handling of it. There was no looking at it, um, but it was plugged into something. Under cross-examination, he agreed that although he could see a cord plugged into the phone, he didn't know where that cord went in the vehicle or whether it was plugged into the vehicle. He didn't know if it was charging or anything like that. Um, and the JJP in traffic court nevertheless convicted um, on the basis of the fact that in order to be using a phone, according to him, all you have to do is have it in the vehicle accessible to the driver, um, that otherwise it has to be securely affixed to the vehicle to not be in use. So my issue with that case was that it was securely affixed. Yes. I mean, if you've ever pressed your phone down in between like your two seats or whatever, it's not going anywhere. You've got to pull it out in but order to do something He said he read like into the regulations that there needed to be some additional contraption or device attached to the vehicle itself to affix the phone. Yeah, which I don't buy. He said seats are for sitting, not for securing phones. But we have this ongoing issue and it's even an issue that police officers um, debate and are uncertain about and that yep. is you know, the cup holder versus sitting on the seat. We know if it's sitting on the seat, that's, you know, basically right there for you to pick up. It's not affixed in any way. Um, but if the it's in the holder, cup holder. Same thing. It's not affixed. It's sitting right there for you to pick up. Yeah. But the, but there's a debate. the cup holder does hold it though. I mean, it, you may have a cup holder that actually holds your phone. Yes. 
There's a debate, though, in the policing community about whether or not um, you can ticket for a phone that's simply loose in the vehicle or whether there has to be some type of, of holding or an accompanying act associated to the phone. So you'll have two police officers standing there in the hallway of traffic court and you'll start talking and, and you know, they'll both concede that there is a debate, but one will say, I give tickets to people when it's in the cup holder. And the other one will say, look, uh, as far as I'm concerned, I'm not a cup holder uh, ticket issuer. Just like some police officers will say, I don't issue tickets on amber lights, you know, well, and there's even <laughs> a debate. red lights only. There was even debate amongst the judicial justices of the peace. So on the one hand, there was the case of Chan, where one judicial justice said, no, no, no having it accessible in the vehicle seems to be implicitly allowed under the regulations because there's an exception for making an emergency call. And how are you going to make an emergency call if you can't access your phone? So as long as you're not actively using it, having it loose in the vehicle doesn't offend the provision. On the other hand, another JJP in um, January of this year wrote a lengthy decision saying, nope, you have to have it securely, the same one that, that did this case, you have to have it securely affixed to the vehicle, you can't be touching it in any way, that case the person was actually holding it. Um, and that it, it if, even if it's loose in the vehicle, that still constitutes using it, you can have it in the vehicle for an emergency call if you put it in the glove box or in your pocket. We do a lot of traffic court what cases. If you're a woman and your clothes don't have pockets. I, I was driving beside a woman a little while ago who had it in a scarf in her hand, like her phone wrapped in her scarf in her hand. She's not touching it. it. So There's a barrier. Go. Yeah. So the, um, the, the, the one thing that we find, because we do a lot of traffic court, is that um, there's... A, inconsistencies from one court to the next. And I think largely it's because there's maybe not enough reported decisions. And also, you know, traffic court JPs don't go sit in other traffic court JPs courtrooms and watch. But I don't they're know. aware of the other decisions because they get argued in front of them. Oh, I know. But I mean, even procedure sometimes feels very inconsistent from one JP to the next. And mm -hmm. you kind of have to figure out, you know, what is this JP's method? Is this, you know, there's one, a, there's one, there's one. Is this a take one, attendance or oh, call the list? Yes. Or? or can the police officers stand up in courtroom or the, must they all be seated or sitting, standing outside or. Uh, I was know. in traffic court earlier this week and uh, the JP called the list alphabetically, which was super annoying because I had a matter where the officer was mm. not going to come and my client was in the middle of the alphabet and there were matters that may be proceeding to trial that were ahead of me in the alphabet. Oh, wasn't so I just... should sit around all day for uh, as counsel um, for a, a client where the officer wasn't going to show up and the JP already knew and acknowledged that. Well, maybe that was an experiment. Most of the time... <laughs> Failed one, in my opinion. The, most of the time, they're pretty efficient there. But there has been this issue, and we've had all of these people over the years who, you know, we're trying to instruct them or, or we're trying to advise them on the state of the law when it comes to their where their cell phone was located in the car. And uh, it seemed to us pretty clear that if the phone was fixed in a way that it wasn't going to be moving around, um, that that should be sufficient unless you're, you know, touching it and handling it and using it and then sticking it back into that spot. And so we were... Um, so we appealed. We appealed. And... Uh, it didn't have to be fought in the end. I mean, it wasn't. Yeah, I mean, it, it didn't have to be fought. But the problem with summary conviction appeals is you still have to file all the arguments. The Crown has to respond to the argument. And then you go in front of the judge and you're like, we all agree that this case was decided wrongly. 
Yeah. So you enter an acquittal. <laughs> you filed the argument. The yeah. um, I wrote the, the argument. Crown looked at it and the crown. agreed that yeah. yeah, that was that the JP was wrong and she looked at the facts that came out. She contacted me before we even filed the argument and said, based on the evidence that came out at trial, I don't see how a conviction could be sustained here. And I said, well, yes, but we recognized both of us the importance of clarity in the law clarity in the law and so we filed the argument and we went to court emma appeared on my behalf because i was in yukon presenting and um had to persuade the judge to give reasons off the bench for an appeal that was being conceded where ordinarily they would just sign the order and send you away and that's because we don't have the... We don't have, have the pronouncement from the court that says this view of the law is right and this view of the law is wrong and a resolution to that conflict. This will all be resolved when our cell phones are mounted into our foreheads. Problem solved. Yeah, you'd love that. <laughs> Just constant cell phone access. For the first five minutes of this podcast, folks, Paul Doroshenko was on Twitter. I was looking some <laughs> things up. On Twitter. That I, I wanted to discuss. <laughs> I wasn't driving. I wasn't operating a motor vehicle. We do, um, we do, like quite significant cross examination training here in the office. And uh, one of the witnesses we had in our recent one was uh, a police officer um, playing the role of the police officer who gave the ticket to Paul Doroshenko, and he was describing me on Twitter. So it's been it's been a running joke for the last month or two. Anyway, so now we have finally Regina and Partridge. You can find it on the BC Supreme Court website or on Canley. Reasons that say that there has to be holding and an accompanying act in order for there to be a conviction for a cell phone ticket. Clarity in the law. Clarity in the law. You have to touch it. If it's loose in the vehicle, that is a-okay. And if the government's not happy with it, they can very easily amend the regulations or the Motor Vehicle Act. But they'd be fools to do that. Please don't amend it again. <laughs> well, and the other thing is, you know, the um, clarity in the law for a few weeks until somebody else has some other, you know, case that's slightly different. I don't think so, because if the Crown's conceding these appeals, then... That's clarity in the law. Okay, but what happens if you hold your phone underneath your thigh? It's firmly pinned down into your vehicle. It's nowhere near your hands. You're How not using it. How did the cops it. see it? What type of thighs do you have? What type of phone do you have? If you've got one of those big iPhones and you've got it face down and it's underneath your thigh or you're and sitting you're really on your phone. And you're really skinny? Well, no, there's times I've got into a car to go and I thought, where am I going to put my phone? There's no phone oh, fixed Well, if you're going to put it under your thigh, put it like fully under your thigh so it's not visible. Well... That doesn't mean that it's not. <laughs> That's not legal advice. <laughs> no, what I'm telling you is that there will be somebody come, who comes along with some other version, variation, or yes. something of this that's going to change it. Clarity in the law for now, and for the police out there, for litigants in traffic court, for lawyers, for judicial justices of the peace, if any of them listen. I suspect, I suspect some do. Yeah, could be. Um, I'm surprised at the audience we've got. Mm -hmm. the, we uh, I'm really like hearing apparently students at the University of Calgary... Uh, we had great uh, shout out to Sean Robichaud in uh, Toronto and um, you know, people are listening to the podcast. So yeah, maybe we should write some jokes or something and try and make it more entertaining. <laughs> um, Why don't we so, move on to our next topic? Yes. Our next topic. I'm actually going to kick you out, Paul, and oh. bring in a guest. Oh, okay. 
So welcome back to the podcast, Roy Ho, who has talked to us about insurance issues before. And today he joins us to talk about a recent case that he won that, I, I don't know if it changes the law, but it applies law in a way that it has very rarely been applied in British Columbia. Hi, thanks for having me again, Kyla. Um, I guess the, the first part is, it doesn't really change the law. It's a very old established law of bailment. What What is bailment? Uh, essentially, it's when you give goods to somebody else to hold on to. Um, a duty of care is established by that person who's agreed to take possession of your property. So it's trusting people with your shit. Yeah, essentially. <laughs> and, you know, pretty much you don't give something to somebody to hold on to for safekeeping or otherwise. Um, in expectation that you bring, they bring it back damaged, lost, or stolen, or something like that. Does a duty of bailment, is that what it, would it be called, a duty of bailment? Or does bailment arise when you give your stuff to anybody, or does there have to be some type of, like, contractual relationship? So there are degrees of bailment. Um, the lowest one is uh, gratuitous bailment, and that's where um, it's for free. Uh, there's no contractual relationship. You're doing a favor for someone. Um the degrees essentially speak to the level or the duty of care that's expected. If there's right. a contract, there's a higher duty of care. Um, yeah, so essentially, it didn't really change the law, but it did establish uh, more law in BC. Because BC, oddly enough, had very little bailment cases. When was the last reported decision in bailment? 2004, I believe. So this is the first one in 15 years. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Big accomplishment. Yes, thank you. <laughs> so what happened here? Why does this relate to driving law? Uh, well, the client uh, initially came to me for insurance issues, and that was part of what the claim was hinging on, too. Um, but he brought his uh, vehicle to an uh, auto repair shop for repairs, so there's a contractual relationship here. Um, he did not have insurance on the vehicle. He only had storage insurance on it. Um, when you have storage insurance, you can't drive it on the road. Um, it can only be stored in a private location. So he had it towed there, I assume. He, he, he did. Well, actually, he didn't. Um, he did some... Uh, he bought insurance. Like, just oh, like a temporary? It temporary, drove right. it down there, and then took it off, put storage back on. Um, and during this time when he left the vehicle with the mechanic, it got stolen. Um, and part of the... Or how it was stolen, essentially, was that it was parked outside overnight. On a uh, public street? That's right. And that was... that's this, So initially, it came... Um, the client came to me with insurance issues. But as I investigated and assessed the claim, it turned out to be um, insurance is not involved here. Uh, they didn't do anything wrong. You, you had insurance policy, but it didn't get activated because of the steps taken or not taken by the garage. Right. The garage should have stored it indoors on private property. Yes. Yeah. And probably should have made sure that it was locked, as I understand from reading the judgment. Yeah, that was part of the thing. I mean, it was never really uh, admitted to, but the uh, in civil courts, a balance of probability. So there, there was evidence or circumstantially pointing to the fact that it likely wasn't locked. Yeah. Right. Okay. And so what happened? Did uh, your client have to pay for the loss of his vehicle? Did he ever get the vehicle back? Yeah, the police did recover it on unrelated um, drug bus, I believe it was. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, they found it um, uh, at a, a drug house that was also a chop shop. They found like 30 other cars there. What type of car was it? Everybody's wondering this. Tell us. <laughs> tell us how cool this car was. Well, it 
the car itself is not very cool. It's just a Mustang, a regular Mustang. But what was unique about it is that this was his project car, a uh, pet car. He had it for... We had it for a while, but he started modifying it over a five-year period, and he spent about somewhere in the range of twenty-five to thirty-five thousand dollars in modifications. What? Yeah, and it's it's way exceeds the value of the car itself. But, what year was it? Uh, I can't recall. I believe it was a ninety-five. Yeah, a 90, so he spent twenty-five to thirty thousand dollars on a ninety-five Mustang. Yeah, so he pretty much made it uh, into a Mustang that was the next model up. <laughs> <laughs> engine wise and then he also added a whole bunch of other bells and whistles to it and that's what um part of the case was built on that as well is that um this mechanic uh he had a long-standing relationship with he brought all his cars to him in the past and continued to do so even while he had the mustang um and he's a very experienced mechanic and part of the case was that uh with respect to his duty of care is that he had knowledge about the uniqueness of this right. vehicle and special care should have been taken, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Anybody, I think if you're in the automotive industry, you would be able to recognize somebody who's spent tens of thousands of dollars on a car that's not worth tens of thousands of dollars. No, actually the car itself, uh, if it was just stock, it's probably market like five, six thousand dollars. I was going to say there's one that parks right in front of my house. I see it all the time. It's cool, but I mean, it's not cool no it's not <laughs> but what he did to it was pretty cool and he, he he did baby it quite a bit and that was part of the uh par, part of the issue with our client was why he was adamant that somebody should be taking responsibility for his loss okay and so your client recovered did he get to recover the full value of the car with all the bells and whistles that he added on or what did he get in he, the end he did not um we uh, at the ninth hour, or eleventh hour, sorry, in the eleventh hour, we did agree on uh, settling the damages. So all we did try did a trial on was liability. Oh, that's good. But he didn't get all of it because um, prior to getting the trial, we had a battle, a, a mini battle of the experts. Uh, we had expert appraisals being done on the vehicle, and it was a lot. It was worth a lot less than it was anticipated. So. He essentially it was um, parts where the car was depreciated quite significantly, uh, even despite the fact they did all that work, and he only drove it in the summertime. Okay, so the amount that he recovered was the twenty five thousand. No, um, how much did he get in the end? He got a total of somewhere a range of thirty thousand, I believe. Okay, all right, so not bad. Not bad, not bad. I mean, it's. It's certainly... It's never going to bring back... Was the car wrecked, like, when he got yeah, it back? Yeah, it was yeah. totally destroyed. Oh, that's yeah. too bad. Okay, so, if you are looking for a decision on the law of bailment that is recent uh, from the BC Supreme Court, you can look no further than Roy Ho's decision, uh, Barnes and Flatliners Auto Care Limited, Um you can always reach out to Roy at our Richmond office at 604-370-3050, and I'm sure he'd be happy to provide you with a copy of the decision. And I expect uh, upon my urging right now that he's going to send it to Canley so that they can put it online. I will do that. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Roy, for talking to us about how bailment intersects with the driving law world in your very recent case. Thank you. Thanks for having me. 
All right, welcome back, Paul. I thank you for giving Roy your your time in the audible spotlight. It gave me a minute to go <laughs> do some other things. I some people I shooed out of our parking spot out yeah, front. Checked and, your Twitter. <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't. I didn't check my Twitter. No, there was somebody parked in. Uh, we're right next to the food bank in Richmond. Well, the, the, we share. Uh, the building uh, with the food bank. The food bank's been here for a long time. And one of the cynical things we have about the food bank, despite the fact that we donate most years to the food bank, is that uh, a lot of the cars that show up there on food bank day um, are luxury cars. And there was well, a, somebody out there in a BMW yeah. SUV. You don't know. Maybe I know. I know. fell on hard times. Things, you know, you're not just going to get rid of your car when you, you know, necessarily, if you say lose your job or something. But uh, BMW SUV parked in one of my reserved parking spots that I pay for, uh, went into the food bank and left his spouse on her new iPhone in the car, talking in the car. And then he came back and then he threw a bunch of crumbs out by my car, which I just washed. I almost never have time to wash my car. I washed it this morning, guaranteeing rain this afternoon. Um, and, uh, threw a bunch of crumbs right out by my car. So of course there were seagulls everywhere. Much to my surprise, my car was still good when I came back in, but yes. Well, so good. that was my exciting moment of, uh, but you wanted to add an angle to the comments about Roy's actually, case. Before I do that, I want to thank the guy from across the street who came and thanked me for giving these people heck for party in my spot. He said, I was watching out the window. I saw the whole thing. Nobody ever challenges anybody. Thank goodness for some common sense. I was like, oh, well, thank you very much. A nice guy. Um, anyway, um, yeah, I was very uh, pleased with Roy's case. Um, impressed with them, uh, with the quality of the work. But the, the interesting thing was uh, the judge, after coming to the first conclusion, you know. That there was. That there Bailment. Yeah, that there was bailment. Ultimately, um, also rejected the evidence of the defendant, um, basically as a result of the cross-examination of Roy. So it, uh, once again, um, you know, supports my view that uh, it is important to teach cross-examination because Roy learned it here. Yeah, um, it was right and, after our big cross-examination seminar. Well, and that was a good um, a good chance to uh, to practice once again. So the next case in our Cavalcade, cavalcade of cases. Sure, cavalcade of cases that we wanted to talk about um, is the recent decision from the BC Court of Appeal, uh, also from March 1st. That was your case. That was my case, uh, called McCabe. Um, this case, it bothered me so much that last summer when we were at that blood training seminar in Texas and we were doing our our practice arguments and as part of the um, the trial skills component, I used that case as my fact pattern, even though it had nothing to do with blood because it was on my mind and I was mad about it. And? And I want to tell everybody first about the facts in the case. A woman is in the passenger seat of her boyfriend's vehicle. Her boyfriend is driving the vehicle. And uh, there's a report about some bad driving, and ultimately there's a motor vehicle accident. A woman that was following them drives past the accident scene, comes back, and sees my client, Miss McCabe, getting out of the driver's seat of the vehicle. She concludes Miss McCabe is the driver, but she doesn't have all the facts. Miss McCabe gets issued ultimately an immediate roadside prohibition, not because she was driving while impaired, but because she refused to blow because it was stupid that she should be 
asked to provide a sample while in the passenger seat of a vehicle and having done nothing wrong. And this is why, as an aside... It was such an angering, it was such an angering so case. So angering. Because this is why, the, as an aside, the, the person who was driving was sober. Yeah. The guy who was driving with sober voluntarily provided a breath sample to prove that. And the cop's like, good for you. Um, yeah. Anyway, the, the the thing that ticks me off about it is all those people who are like, oh, yeah, you don't want to get an IRP? Don't drink and drive. Well, that's exactly what happened here. And yet... The, she didn't drink and drive. She didn't drink and drive. Police and officers yet, still asked her to provide a sample. And still gave her an IRP, her which an IRP. went all the way to the Court of Appeal. The... Um, at the hearing, she produced so much evidence. An, I, remem I, remember the evidence. evidence. I remember the evidence. Yeah. To show that she was, but the, but the listeners don't. <laughs> well, I'm sure they don't. But I, it's, I'm just telling you, you the way yes. you're looking at me is like, oh, okay. do you remember the evidence? A mountain of evidence to show that she was not the driver. She had her own statement saying, I wasn't the driver. Her boyfriend's statement saying, I was the driver. I was sober. She was drinking. Obviously, I was driving. The fact that the car was registered to mm. him. They had a statement from the person they were with prior to. Um, leaving, who said, I saw him driving when they left. And by the way, he always drives when they're together. She never drives, which is sort of that, um, you know, very traditional gender divide when it comes to relationships and driving. Um, the Court of Appeals seemed to accept that in argument. Then there was a medical report from a doctor who assessed her after the collision, who found that her injuries were to her her right side consistent with being the passenger in a collision in which the vehicle is struck on the passenger side and uh, a report from an accident reconstructionist who examined the vehicle who confirmed that without heavy force being applied the door would have been difficult to open and finally on the passenger side on yeah. the passenger side yep all of these things all of these. There's like seatbelt marks or something on the bruises on the person's shoulder or something too. I think. Yeah, she had an yeah. injury to her shoulder. She had like bruises on her right thigh, on the outside, like just everything you would expect. But of course, when you conduct your hearing, you know, with Road Safety BC, you've got to prove your case. Except this was a pre. This was. <laughs> oh, this was before this that. This was even. before the onus oh. shift, so the burden wasn't even on her. The burden was on the superintendent to be satisfied um, that she was the driver before confirming the prohibition. And they basically looked to the fact that there was some witness report of bad driving, and so the boyfriend wasn't credible. And then they found the medical report wasn't credible because the doctor didn't put a date on it, even though it was faxed two days prior to the hearing. And obviously it was prepared after the accident. So like in a nine day period of time when it could have been written, um, we have, you know, we have that. Uh, the uh, accident reconstructionist's report was deserving of no weight because ultimately the door of the vehicle was opened. So obviously he was wrong that it wouldn't open without ex extreme force. And then finally, the um, report from the friend who said, I always see him driving and he was driving when they left, which is consistent with all of my observations, wasn't relevant because it wasn't about, about who was driving at the time of the accident. It was about who was driving like an hour before. Well, I don't even think it was an hour, but yeah. Yeah, just absolutely ridiculous. Like they're just going to pull over and the sober boyfriend is going to get out of the driver's seat of his own vehicle, walk around, get in the passenger seat. The passenger's going to get out. The drunk passenger is going to get out, walk around, get in the driver's seat and then start driving. 
it just makes you so cynical about the process because a decision like that and, and so many that the court have looked at and sort of commented on look like they're reverse engineered. Like there's this start with the presumption of guilt and desperately look for anything that you can find in there that you can re to reject the evidence and to support it, even though it's like any reasonable person looking at it would say, come on. <laughs> Like, yeah. come on. I, literally every person, like when I described it to the other lawyers in um, in Texas or anybody else that I've told about this case, they've all said, are you kidding me? Which was kind of the Court of Appeals approach. Are you kidding are me? Are you kidding me? Like yeah. in the hearing, they were like, but I don't understand. Like he's the sober owner of the vehicle and he's a male and she's a female. And that is sort of consistent with like a... a a gender experience and also she has all this evidence and you've got the hearsay of one witness who wasn't even there at the time that people were getting out of the vehicle who says nothing about where the boyfriend was because she says she didn't know how do you get to she was definitely the driver well or more likely than unfortunately not the there's probably you know a few hundred irps like that with a similar scenario in this province hundred? where no i mean uh, just on the driving issue oh yeah for just sure. on the driving issue where people have have conducted their own hearing or a, you know another firm did it and they looked at it and didn't appeal it or whatever we may have had it and we couldn't have persuaded our client to allow us to appeal it like yep. this is this has happened before this is not exactly a a new thing with this you know getting a decision like that and 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 i mean like that i'm just talking about the accident and people getting out of one side of the car and the assumption about who's the driver or some other completely hokey evidence that's not believable to anybody else about, you know, who was driving, who wasn't driving, but the superintendent will just assume because the police officer issued the IRP. Oh, sure. They must have been a driver. I mean, the thing that gets me the most about this though is, okay, fine. Like the superintendent upheld it and they made a bad decision. We, you know, we come to expect imperfection. I'm being coy maybe but we come to expect imperfection from tribunals um the bc supreme court saw through that and found that the adjudicator didn't fairly consider all of the evidence made a very a very trite finding about law that in order to arrive at a credibility determination you can't piecemeal reject portions of the evidence and then refuse to consider the whole like, we're not talking about, like, a groundbreaking novel proposition about how to assess evidence. Two-thirds of the <laughs> two -thirds of the successful IRP uh, appeal decisions of BC Supreme Court basically say that or repeat that because that's the yeah. part of their standard procedure. An, an adjudicator is required to consider the totality of the evidence. If the government didn't want them to consider the totality of the evidence, just like they could with the cell phone law... They can amend the legislation and say an adjudicator doesn't have to consider all the evidence. But in fact, the Motor Vehicle Act says in Section 215.49, an adjudicator must consider and then lists everything. It would be it would it be would. constitutionally invalid if they... Well, obviously. Well, mind you, we thought that was obvious when they reversed the onus. Now they're reversing the onus, as we know, for uh, civil forfeiture. Anyway. Yes. Um, so, I, I mean, it got me that, that uh, they fought it 
at BC Supreme Court, and then when they lost, it got me even more that they bothered to appeal that. Like, what are you appealing? What is the appeal that an adjudicator doesn't have to do what the statute says and what the law just requires finders of fact to do in any case? I think they could have persuaded themselves to do that appeal on the basis of their their win rate at the Court of Appeal. I think they've just come to the conclusion that um, BC Supreme Court judges likely to look at it and say that it's wrong and the court of appeal is likely just to defer to the to the adjudicator but when the decision is so i I don't know overwhelmingly i'm I'm saying not inadequate yeah but i'm saying i don't think they're looking at the decision i think they just you know look at their win rate at the court of appeal and say we're just going to appeal everything yeah, well, my win rate at the Court of Appeal just doubled. Well, that's good. You did. You did. You did. <laughs> I felt like, that. what, 4% to 8%? Well, I don't know. I don't it's know not what that you, bad. No, you've done, you've done better than that. But yeah. it's um, the the problem is that you succeed in BC Supreme Court, and then they appeal it to the Court of Appeal. And I, you know, generally, I'm, I'm not always in agreement with the Court of Appeal. However, that's the law. Them's the laws. We just whine about them on this podcast. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, um, as as if it is any surprise out there, the completely not groundbreaking Court of Appeal decision, which says in a 12-paragraph judgment, adjudicators have to consider all of the evidence, even if there are flaws in individual pieces of evidence, it still has to be considered as an evidentiary whole before they make their decision. The, end. the problem is it still opens it up for them to reverse engineer um, decisions no. because they can consider it all and then just reject it. I find that it's not credible. Um, and that is... Um, yep, but that's what you got with credibility assessment. Well, it's, in- well, it's the problem with the... With the uh, I guess it's the problem with having a tribunal that's being reviewed by a superior level of court where we defer to the findings of fact. Yeah, well, don't get me started on the concept of deference. I'm going to wait for the Bell Trilogy um, to come out, and hopefully our idea of deference and reasonableness will shift to something that's more palatable. Uh, There's a book that I've got sitting uh, on my filing cabinet called uh, Unjust by Design, talking about tribunals in this country. And when I read it, I was like, oh, okay, yes, this is my experience. Um, It's a problem. It's a problem, and uh, I sure hope that the court addresses the problem. Yeah, well, we'll see. Um, I, I'm sure when the Bell Trilogy comes out and admin law is either rewritten or confirmed in this country, um, we'll have lots to talk about about its application to the IRP scheme. It'll be like an hour-long podcast special. Can you imagine that you would ever be doing an hour-long podcast special on an administrative law decision from the Supreme Court of Canada? No, we absolutely cannot do that because this is driving law. Let's get back to driving law, Kyla. We've <laughs> yes. got another case to talk about. Yes, the last case, uh, also an IRP case <clears throat> and a much more, uh, I think, not groundbreaking, but a much more useful, Im- like useful daily and important useful, yeah. case from the BC Supreme Court with an impossible to pronounce <laughs> name. Paul, do you want to try? No, I, I, if I was looking at it, I might. I'm not we're, looking at we're it. Wierszewski, I think. I don't know. Anyway. anyway, it's a case involving a refusal to provide a sample where the officer's allegations were effectively, and this is this is about the extent of the evidence, although I'm paraphrasing, uh, he attempted to blow once, the result was insufficient flow. He tried another time, 
again, insufficient flow. There was a third attempt to provide a sample, which also yielded insufficient flow. So no description of any, like, steps taken by the driver, like blocking the mouthpiece or biting down or or blowing out the sides of his lips. Or, or, or anything that would suggest back. that the person was trying to, trying to obstruct the process or yep. trying not Just to blow or trying to... You know, like, insufficient flow. And it, it didn't make sense. The sequence of it didn't make sense either. So ultimately, um, you know, the adjudicator upheld it because again, the police officer wouldn't have issued the IRP if... Yeah, the adjudicator said, so there were two arguments at the hearing. The first was that insufficient flow is not a status message that appears on a properly functioning breathalyzer of the type that the officer used. And so clearly that was evidence of a malfunction. It does just, that that status message does appear on a different device. Yes, the AlcoSensor 5XL. Yeah. the other argument at the hearing was that there was no um, no real like opportunity to challenge what the officer had alleged because he didn't really know what the case against him was. So the client provided an affidavit saying, look, I wasn't doing all these things that I can imagine the, o- the officer might have alleged had he articulated what he thought I was doing. I wasn't biting down. I wasn't blowing around the mouthpiece. I wasn't sucking back. I wasn't blocking it with my tongue. I wasn't deliberately blowing short breaths of air and then stopping. I was blowing as hard as I could every time. And this case is important for three reasons, I think. One, because the adjudicator said, when the officer says insufficient flow, all he's doing is providing an overview of what was happening. This is an ongoing problem we see. So we see police officers, instead of describing the evidence, and not just with respect to, you know, their method of blowing, but just like how they form their opinion. Uh, Instead of telling us what the evidence is uh, in immediate roadside prohibitions, they tell us what their mental conclusion was. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and I'm always telling the tribunal, look, you can't just rely on the conclusions. This is supposed to be a review of the evidence. And it's, uh, you know, it's a frustrating thing because you feel sometimes that it's falling on deaf ears. But this is a circumstance where um, you know, the police officer, the, the tribunal said, well, he's just paraphrasing. Well, come on. Yeah, <laughs> and that's uh, the court found language we see in a lot of decisions from the Supreme Court that uh, the adjudicator was essentially assuming the most favorable facts to the police, which you can't do. Yeah. Um, the second reason that I think it's really important. Well, it feels like you only can't do it if you're going to appeal it. Um, yes. So we will continue to see that in decisions. We've seen it in decisions. It still happens every day. Every day. Um, we um, see that the government doesn't always abide by Supreme Court decisions. That's been a long part of our complaint. In I mean, you the basically, last few years. like going into an IRP hearing, have to be mentally prepared mm. for the possibility of an appeal. I mean, do everything you can to win, but be mentally prepared for the possibility of a judicial review. Well, you're you're also making sure that the record is there to be able to establish that for the purpose of that. That's one of the things that we find that people don't consider, mostly self-represented people who call yeah. us after the fact in tears because they lost and they're wondering why they lost. Yeah, or clients sometimes ask me, you know, why did you send all these extra submissions? Well, because I'm trying to protect you. You hired me to do a job. Yeah. I'm... I'm doing the job. Yeah. Um, you might not understand all of my motives. You don't need to. Yeah. It's not necessary. <laughs> no. The important um, thing is I'm trying to set you up. To... Yes. So uh, 
the second reason that it's important is that it deals with this problem that's arisen with procedural fairness. Because the officers, the courts have found, the Court of Appeals held this, that the officer roadside is a tribunal. And so they owe a duty of procedural fairness to the driver. And part of procedural fairness includes the right to know the case against you. So for the adjudicator to say, I don't, you know, I don't accept your evidence because why would you deny all these things? And how would you know to deny them um, unless that's what you were doing was essentially denying him procedural fairness because he didn't know what the allegation was that he had to dispute. So he disputed everything imaginable. And I think that is probably going to be the most important aspect of that case for lawyers dealing with these going forward is those circumstances where it's vague about what the allegation is, particularly in a refusal case, if it has not been explained by the police officer. Yes. And the last reason that this case is important is because also in refusal cases, there's been a tension about whether the driver's intention to provide a sample is relevant. So there was a case back in like 2014 called Yee, where the BC Supreme Court judge said that the officers have to prove a valid demand that there was a failure refusal and that the driver intended to produce the failure refusal. And for a long time, the superintendent followed that and was looking at, you know, did you intend to refuse to blow? And then ultimately, they said, actually, we're of the view that Yee's been overtaken by other authority and intentions no longer relevant. It's really whether or not you refuse to blow, not whether or not you meant to, which kind of eliminates the concept of reasonable excuse because it... it, it limits reasonable excuse to like a factual proposition as opposed to I was really trying and it didn't work and also in a circumstance where you can't compel disclosure you can't cross-examine so you can't get this information like Mr. Wyszewski you couldn't get a clear indication of whether or not the device actually said the words insufficient flow which would of course mean it was malfunctioning that was a lot of words that was a lot of words and I had some thoughts as it was uh as it was coming out, and by the time I was done, I was uh, you were done. I, I basically lost my train of thought. Sorry. Um, the uh, so summarize it for me. Um, uh, this case resolves that lack of clarity in the law about whether or not it's still relevant that somebody was trying their best to blow and says but, yes. But, but what about the circumstances where a person? Um, is asking like three times before they blow, what if I don't blow? What if I refuse? Well, that's evidence that speaks to intention. If you have somebody who's asking those questions, it's conduct surrounding the, you know, offense, to use the loose term, um, that speaks to their state of mind at the time they were... It's unfortunate because you can have somebody who legitimately asks that question yeah. well, and and then... What if I don't does do their best to actually yeah, blow and the police officer that. by virtue of the fact that yeah i know you can address it all you want it doesn't mean the tribunal is going to believe it um the uh, and it can be completely truthful and it doesn't mean the tribunal is going to believe it the uh the the circumstance where a person has asked that uh i've always found that the police officer is much less likely to spend that extra time to make sure that the person's providing a sample it's almost like the death knell you ask that question if you don't provide a sample that's perfect for that, that device doesn't accept your sample, rather. On the first blow, the police officers basically got it in their mind that they're moving toward a refusal. And unfortunately, the tribunal seems to almost rubber stamp those cases if that those words have come out of your mouth. Yeah. So don't ever ask, what if I refuse? If you refuse, everything is worse. So just don't refuse. You heard generally, it here first. Generally, folks. yeah. Well, I mean, and in the, the, criminal code, the criminal code now is $2,000. I mean, yeah. we're talking about if immediate refuse, roadside prohibitions, but yeah. 
Yeah, it's harder to fight. There's less less defenses. Do your best to legitimately attempt to blow. He might blow under. I will tell you the one thing that uh, some people got really upset at me for when I said this before, but it's like it's it's accepted in the literature. Do your best to take some deep breaths before you blow because people are nervous there at the roadside. When you're nervous, you're holding your breath. You hold your breath. The alcohol concentration can go up for a couple of reasons which I don't really need to explain, but um, there's actually a debate about the reasons. That yes, it, that was <laughs> and if you subscribe to Jan Semenov's uh, journal Counterpoint, Jan was on the podcast with us about two months ago. Um, if you subscribe to his journal Counterpoint, he and Ron Moore co-authored an article about hyperventilation and um, breath test readings. Mm. Interestingly, he and Ron disagree in the article about the reason but agree with the result, which is that... And so the reason I'm not telling you my reason is because I have a third explanation that's not either of theirs, and I still hold by mine because we did the experiments. Well, you should write a, uh, an article for CounterPoint to follow up. Uh, I'm not a scientist, Kyla. And I'm, <laughs> you know, unfortunately, this is one of the problems that I've noticed in the last few years that has been, I don't know if it's been a problem for you, but it's been a problem for me is that I know too much about breath testing and yep. it makes it, leads it, leads me to be standing there, not wanting to get the question out. I just want to explain the damn thing. Yes. So. And also it's difficult to get the evidence out of somebody, witnesses who know less about it than you do. Yeah. Because you need a point, you know you need a point, and they don't know it, and you're standing there wondering, how do I get them to this point? That was, uh, we had a, a trial I'm thinking of in Kamloops, or uh, Kamloops, with that same issue. In any way. Yes. Uh, Discuss that another event. day. Yes. I think we're at the we end. We'll talk about it another day. So if you want to get copies of any of these decisions, oh, I should say, though, before we sign off, that the Wierzewski case was not just me. Oh, it wasn't, yeah, um, it no, wasn't you. I, that was Brandon. That was Brandon. I did the original hearing. I filed the petition and Brandon and I worked together on the argument, but he argued it in court. He persuaded the judge. Um, his report back after the court hearing was not uh, enthusiastic. So obviously he did a good job and just completely underestimated himself. But. So we've got um, successes uh, for you in uh, sort of three of them, but also Emma, Brandon, and, and Roy. Roy. Yeah, this is, you know, the, the Accu team at work. Yeah, and good. if you want copies and of it was any... less than, and it was less than a month. I thought it was four weeks. Turns out it was... It's like March 1st, March 1st, February 13th, and okay, last Okay, so week. it was a month. So okay. it was a month. Yeah. If you want copies of any of these decisions or you want to talk to us more about any of them, you can find us online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com or give us a call at 604-685-8889 and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law. 